Hello and welcome to the 30th Not A Game podcast. Um, we honestly didn't think we'd make it past three. Um, <laughs> with me today oh. I have... <laughs> I did. Okay, I have... Vince wanting to learn all her money from this. This is her life plan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is my retirement fund, dude. <laughs> that one small advert on the website. <laughs> yeah, that eight pence is going to see me through. <laughs> It'll be worth £600,000 when you're 80. It'll be fine. That's what I've I've done the maths. It all checks out. We're fine. <laughs> As you may have heard, uh, I'm joined by the optimistic Philip War. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> Kesson McDonald. Hello. And Simon Parkin. Hi there. <laughs> He's joining us for the first time. Kes is a returning guest, one of our few. Um, I so... wasn't completely put off last time. <laughs> <laughs> I think you were you were informational last time. It was it was it was a shock to the system. <laughs> yeah, I think I, I think I was in the middle of reviewing Grand Theft Auto. Yeah, it was a strange uh, place in my mind. <laughs> so you got possibly the biggest laugh from ever on the podcast when you described the wall at Quantic Dream. Oh God, <laughs> that was amazing. I have a motion written on the wall in uh, letters. Good times. <laughs> And now he's getting a legion of honour. Well, Beyond worked out well, didn't it, mm. in the end? Had all the emotions, uh, all of them. It had several of different emotions from, from different walks of life. Happy, hungry, sleepy. Yeah. Any others? Cranky, <laughs> childbirth, child death. <laughs> wow. All of the dwarfs. <laughs> Doc. Ghosts. <laughs> My favourite emotion. emotion. <laughs> I think it should be. <laughs> uh, I was talking to you know the uh, indie game developer Bennett Foddy who made Quop. Yeah. You know, I was chatting to him about um, comedy and games and how hard it is to do. And he was talking about um, Heavy Rain. Um, his favourite <laughs> funny moment in Heavy Rain is right at the start when. Um, the guy's wife says, can you lay the table and put the plates out? <laughs> and um, you're supposed to kind of gently kind of ease the analog stick to put the plates down. <laughs> and every time he would just kind of smash the plates everywhere. Yeah. And the, the kind of voice acting wife is like, what are you doing? <laughs> time. It's just over 20 minutes. <laughs> yeah, I had a crack at Heavy Rain recently for the first time. And basically that is exactly what we were like three of us in the room. We would just try and use the analog use the analog controls in the funniest way possible yeah. Like, yeah. whether that's smashing plates down or just like taking out a, a taking out a, a, an orange a carton of orange juice shaking it looking forlornly at it for five straight minutes and then putting it back. <laughs> for me it was a game where ethan nearly sat down yeah. Just ease the controller so he was nearly sat down and stand him up again. It was great. Yeah, that's because there's a bit Big where you, you make them kiss, isn't there? And you can kind of they you can push him towards her, and they both lean in, and then at the last, when <laughs> it pull back, go psych. <laughs> so yeah. I kind of yeah, we kind of made like it turned the whole the whole famous like bit with the losing his shoulder into this a whole dark comedy because we just had him repeatedly fail to put his hand in his pocket to. Fight. <laughs> to find the money. Oh, God. <laughs> so his child was killed by inability to get money out of his own pocket. There was also a, um, a, a a bug where, you know, the final bit of the game, I won't spoil it if you haven't played it, but there's a, there's a final bit where basically if you press the Jason button enough, 
then you can make it so that the dialogue just stops happening and so he can be in the middle of a sentence and you can still press Jason and it will interrupt the entire scene and everyone will just stare at him. It's, it's just perfect. Yeah, no, I've seen that. Beautiful. Infinite Jason. Yeah. It turns out we were all wrong. Like, David Cage is a genius and um, just in one very specific area of slapstick. It's actually been playing comedy all along. I was yeah. talking to someone about comedy and video games today. Mm. I was talking to Matt Stone of, of South Park. Oh, oh wow. About that, um, about Stick of Truth and that, and why comedy doesn't work in video games. And he said something really interesting, which is that so much of comedy is timing. Mm. Yeah. And in a video right. game, you can't really control the timing of when someone does something. No. I'm thinking right, that's yeah. why something like jazz punk does work, because it's, it's like, really it's lots of... Yeah, little gags as well, but it's like the surprise of interacting with an object and it just doing something really unexpected. But the flip side of that is that you can turn things that were never intended to be funny into jokes by controlling the timing of which Heavy Rain, I guess, is the, <laughs> is the most obvious example. Yeah. Just the timing of brushing your own teeth becomes hilarious when you mess with <laughs> that. <everything>. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Was uh, Matt Stone basically saying that his game's not funny then? <laughs> He was exploring the challenges of right. writing a game that was actually funny. But he said the problem the problem was that they'd they'd um you know, they'd do like recurring gags, but the problem is the recurring gag might be four weeks later. At <laughs> right, which point yeah. it's just a complete non sequitur. So they had to try and figure out ways to do that that, that you know, didn't break the flow. <laughs> and they didn't assume the player was playing for ten straight hours or however long. Bennett uh Bennett was talking about his game Quop and some funny things that fans have done with it. So it's the, in the game, if you haven't seen it, you uh, control each of the four limbs of an athlete. And it's it's funny because all you have to do is run the 100 metres, which is a very easy task. But because you control each of these limbs independently, it's very difficult and kind of uh, the limbs f- flail off in different directions and all that kind of stuff. And um, it inspired a load of YouTube videos where people would kind of try and run like the athlete in quap and film themselves doing it and all of that which uh, which i'd seen but then he mentioned something that I hadn't seen which is someone had motion captured a quap run um on their computer and then like attached the motion captured data to a 3d anime anime schoolgirl and had her running around the moon <laughs> of course um yeah recently the People try after like the told Twitch plays Pokemon thing. People have tried Twitch plays Quop, which is just oh, even no, more no. impossible than previously <laughs> playing Quop. Twitch plays Pokemon has made me so happy in the past week, though. Mm, I haven't actually seen that much of it, but it's, I... it's such an amazing testament to like humans being humans <laughs> together and like messing stuff up horribly. Like they've created separate religions around it. Did you know this? <laughs> no. I do know that it's mostly people I've, I've been told it's mostly people Hang ultimately on, yelling mostly, yeah. anarchy and democracy well, there are, I thought there it was are, mostly revolving around the helix fossil yeah, yeah. There, are, there are three different religions the first one is like a small one which is the people who are devoted to the SS ticket mm-hmm. um, and then there's the followers of the helix fossil the reason this has sprung up is because everybody kept getting lost in the menu and just repeatedly checking the helix fossil <laughs> <laughs> or the I SS ticket which that. just made everyone think that maybe um, maybe maybe yes, the game was actually like about um, his quest to revive the Helix fossil rather than anything else, and he was seeking guidance from it. <laughs> and then um, the other people, there's the people who believe that the Helix fossil is a false prophet and the Dome fossil is, in fact, a true prophet. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and this is really complicated. There's, like, fanfics about it. There's, like, flowcharts. It's, it's so amazing. I love it. That explains it, because... Um... 
Laura Dale was talking about she's I think she's done cosplay as Red from Pokemon and the first one was talking about doing it as Twitch plays Pokemon <laughs> <laughs> just like carrying around a fake Twitch chat window <laughs> and walking to walls occasionally and people were telling her that she should always carry the cat Helix fossil <laughs> yes definitely strap it to, but they, they did actually there was a brilliant moment this week a couple of days ago where they actually finally managed to get to the, the lab I think it's on Cinnabar Island and revived the Helix fossil <laughs> and so Omanite has now become part of the, the part Party of hilariously named Pokemon, <laughs> and uh, and this is like a moment of like Jesus returning to Earth for the Pokemon, tw- the Twitch plays Pokemon people. It was it's been so good. <laughs> I mean, when I saw it, like the messages streamed by so quickly. Uh, I mean, how on earth do they reach a consensus of what they're know. going to do? I think it must be on it, external bot, forums and stuff. That does it? I think well, yeah, like because there's some information about how the um, how the mechanics of it work, but yeah, like I wasn't quite sure whether people were coordinating in terms of trying to actually get to certain places or well the the pull is between people who are trying to troll it and people mm. who are actually trying to make progress mm. so that, that's actually they, they got stuck in the underground maze in the team rocket headquarters oh, for a whole God. day I got, like stuck, I, I got stuck there for a whole day playing by myself <laughs> <laughs> just the voices in your head going left no right <laughs> anarchy democracy but they did get through they did eventually get through and I thought no this is it they're never going to get past this and mm. then there was ledge gate <laughs> where um everyone was trying to trying to walk along one of the routes i think it was route nine and it's all ledges and someone would just press down and someone would get through the down and they just leap straight off and back to the beginning <laughs> and uh, i stopped watching at that point i was like i can't deal with this this is too frustrating but they got past they they, they i overcame it i don't know how they're going to do victory road though mm. Mm. this is reminding me of um there's uh i found a paper rpg called everyone is john i don't know if anyone's heard of it um where you all play, like one person plays everyone else as the DM, and everyone else uh, and the other players are all different um, voices in John's head, uh, right. seem to take it, push him in different directions, and then every time he fails at something, he briefly falls asleep, and a different voice takes over. Uh, <laughs> and it basically works out much like Twitch plays Pokemon, only if it was played by 80,000 people. <laughs> Twitch is. Wow. Mm. <laughs> I think it's the the best crowd gaming ever. Sorry, Pip. The nice thing about um, Everyone is John is, I guess, like Twitch plays Pokemon, everyone has their own secret goal that they're trying to achieve, which I guess is true of of, uh, of Twitch plays Pokemon as well, because everyone has their own bizarre thing about the Helix fossil, apparently. (laughs) Or the Dome fossil. Mm. There's also a bunch of of stuff going on with Lapras, um, who got released from the party. And that was like the Exodus. There was this, this thing called the Exodus where three or four Pokemon all got released <laughs> by from the menu. <laughs> and, then, and then there was a thing where they were trying to buy, I think they were trying to buy a stone to evolve Eevee. Mm. And they just completely fucked that up as well. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that became another like major moment in the, in the canon. <laughs> Are you gonna have to like at some point in your in your capacity as a grown up journalist write the gospel according to Twitch Face Pokemon? <laughs> that would that would make a great project. <laughs> it yeah. does have like a it yeah, it does have a biblical kind of tone to it, doesn't it? All of this. This might be the next book from Press Select. <laughs> <laughs> I love the way that everyone's making I just love the way people make stories, you know, that's one of the reasons games are so great. Mm. And watching all these people making these ridiculous stories out of Pokemon. 
It's just, it's so brilliant. It's, it's really life-affirming, even though it's the most frustrating thing to watch in the world. Yeah. Believe it or not, we actually had a question asking us if um, streaming was the co-authorship of games. So uh, I think we've already answered that. <laughs> Comprehensively, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Although few games would support it. I mean, I wouldn't even have thought Pokemon would support it. Mm. You know, you can never tell. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, um, it's really hard to predict exactly what will work out through what, what exactly will hit big when it comes to like video or um streaming it's, it's yeah um yeah pokemon exactly so i guess because it's so slow it's easier to do that kind of voting mechanism because it's you know so tile based and stuff like that well they're yeah. mostly not voting like the, the the democracy almost never came in it came in to get them through the maze and then ever since then everyone's just voted for anarchy and everyone's walking around in circles again <laughs> i wonder what the game clock on that must be now it must be hundreds and hundreds of hours yeah. have, they, have they tried any other games with it like street fighter or i presume that must have happened by now i know that there's a football game and there's there's a few twitch places but i, I don't know how you actually map the inputs because i mean obviously they're doing it through an emulator with pokemon mm. right yeah well i think yeah there's other stuff that spun off like i said there was that twitch plays crop thing but um i don't think that lasted right. very long yeah yeah. um yeah i can't remember what the other thing was there was something twitch plays something and then everyone was complaining that it was ripping off twitch plays pokemon but i really can't <laughs> remember what it was which would be so useful right now <laughs> oh those twitch plays pokemon clothes yeah. maybe it's more of a twitch plays pokemon like <laughs> so uh Guess that's what everyone's been playing recently, but I suspect both of you, Simon and Guess, have been playing things that you're not allowed to talk about. <laughs> I can talk about the thing I was playing before this thing, which was Dark Souls. <laughs> I um I jumped back into Dark Souls uh, in preparation for Dark Souls Two, mm. and um I so I jumped back in to a save file. I, I reviewed Dark Souls at the time, and it was a nightmare. It was a horrendous experience because not just because it was Dark Souls. Uh, which is, you know, pretty difficult on the old mental well-being, but also because uh, the debug build that we had was not finished. It wasn't quite the finished game. It wasn't quite balanced. Mm. So, uh, Simon, I think you were playing it as well, right? Yes, I was, yeah, yeah. And there were some crucial things like the way that cursing works and the way that humanity drops worked and a few other, like, things that would seem quite minor. Cursing was already a nightmare uh, when I went back to it, like, years later. Yeah. Yeah. And it's uh, so all that stuff was, was had happened, and so I ended up basically having to play this game when I was reviewing it in 2011 four times um, for about like a hundred hours. I had to play it on two different debug builds, then two different retail builds, and then I did a 24-hour live stream with IGN. Jeez. So by the time that had all finished, I hadn't actually finished the game. I was far from finishing it because it was almost impossible to get past Ornstein and Smau on that early build. Mm. Um, so uh, I basically by the time the game came out I started again I got up to um, I played it for a few hours and then I just stopped and I hadn't been back so I was picking up this save file after three years away two years away and um, I picked it up and I had no idea what I'd done (laughs) and what I hadn't oh yeah no I saw you talking about this I think this would be actually kind of an amazing idea just hand people midway save points in games and try and (laughs) make them figure out what they've quantum leaped into yeah, so I was I was basically stuck like looking through the item menu, trying to decipher from the items that I had where I'd been and where I hadn't, 
And then after about um, 10 minutes, I was like, right, now where's that ring that gets my health bar up to three quarters? Because I was confusing it with Demon Souls in my mind. And then I was like, why is my health bar? Oh, I'm cursed. <laughs> I must have gotten cursed and rage quitted and never gone back. <laughs> but it was, it was, so I kind of, have, I've been starting from there and I'm, I'm, I nearly finished it now again. And um, yeah, it was, it was really interesting experience coming back to a game where I literally couldn't remember. I mean, apparently I'd managed to do the gargoyles, gaping dragon, moonlight butterfly, and um, you know all the stuff up to that in about four hours, which is pretty impressive. But considering I had to play the game four times, perhaps not that impressive. <laughs> it's but funny yeah, that because these are hilarious. Because I guess like every game has its own vocabulary, right? That in terms of what each thumb and button does right every time you play it so it's kind of like that whenever you go into a game after a period of time away and everything's slightly in the wrong place especially if you've been playing a similar game uh which is slightly different you know it's slightly different mapping um, yeah like i i went um I was playing the Titanfall beta when it was out, and then I immediately went back to Counter-Strike, and it was the strangest experience, yeah. suddenly lacking a sprint button and having to pull out your knife instead. Yeah, it's like switching languages, I guess, when you go abroad and then... Kind of... Or suddenly moving from a PC to a Mac and keep, keep hitting the control key. Yeah, <laughs> yes, exactly. I've got an inventory slot theory about languages. <laughs> <laughs> you have two. You have a primary and a secondary inventory slot for languages, mm. and the primary one you can't switch out because that's your mother tongue. You can't switch that one out. That's always there. Mm. But then the secondary one you need to switch in and out. When I was living in Japan, mm. um, and then I moved back to Germany, I would just speak Japanese in a German accent because <laughs> I, <laughs> I hadn't managed to switch out the inventory slot. And still, I have this problem whenever I go to France. I speak I speak pretty good French, but I also just randomly speak Japanese words, but in a French accent, so it's in French. <laughs> and it's, See, it I takes a while to switch them in and out. I think you're right, because... Um, so I went to Sweden, and, like, I think for some reason people just assumed that I was Swedish. And so they would talk to me in Swedish, but my default foreign language setting is Russian. So I would say, like, yes or please or thank you in Russian. And then they'd be like, oh, so you're Russian then? And they'd, like, try and talk to me in Russian. I'd be like, no, I'm not Russian. I'm English. Oh, God, this is a disaster. Uh, <laughs> basically, English people are awful at languages. <laughs> Boy, I'm Scottish and I'm really hard. <laughs> Maybe it's like that in games and we have a you have a kind of a mother tongue <laughs> game interface language that you use like yeah, Tetris. I think mine We're is all te Mario. Tetris at the moment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you panic and don't understand the game and you just try and rotate everything. Hang on, Keza, do you remember when we were playing Goldeneye round Louis and I suddenly remembered how to hold the controller and then I was actually good at that fucking game? <laughs> what were you doing before? Well, you know how like, it's got the three prongs? Yes. So I was holding it with the leftmost one and the middle one, but like then I, thumb over. Yeah, and then I suddenly thought, "Hang on, it's the middle and the right one." And then I was like, "Kezza, I'm going to kill you." <laughs> and you did. I did. It was yeah. the most pleased I've been in a while. <laughs> it was an amazing comeback. It really was. I was so far behind. Oh. It is funny, like, I do think that we, I think Simon's right, we do have kind of a default language for games. Mine's 3D Mario, and I've seen other people try to play 3D Mario, and just because they're not familiar with the language of the game mm. and the language of the controls, they really, really struggle with it, whereas to me it's second nature. Mm. And I think that everything, every other 3D platformer I play, I'm like, yeah, it's not 3D Mario. Mm. And that makes it more difficult to, to kind of 
speak its language and understand it? I think I default to mouse look FPS. I played, I started playing um, Mirror Moon EP recently, mm-hmm. uh, and it was the strangest experience because it doesn't have mouse look. And I haven't played a game that, uh, you know, a, a first person game that doesn't have mouse look since Doom. So <laughs> I, I just, I, I was, con- I cannot stop myself from trying to look around with the mouse. Now, even though I know it's not going to work, I just keep moving it. <laughs> I had um, recently, because in anticipation of Thief coming out, I decided to actually go back and play the old games, which I've never played, actually. Oh, so you want yeah, to? So I played um, Thief Gold. Well, I'm playing Thief Gold at the moment. And so, but the first thing I did was become massively confused because the controls aren't mapped to like a, a, a keyboard layout that I recognize from other games. And so I was just suddenly like, uh, wait, what? Like, because, um, yeah, S isn't backwards. S is like walk slower and then X is walk backwards. And I was just kind of, no, okay, we're going to take some time out and map this to what is essentially Counter-Strike. I get, and yeah. then we're going to play. I get how they used to speak in the olden days. <laughs> in games. <We're> saxed. <laughs> Uh, no, I get I get annoyed enough when sort of when someone's put crouch on C rather than control. Uh, that would drive me crazy. I keep rebinding my Dota keys as well, which is no good for anybody because I don't get used to them. So now I'm just trying to stick with one binding and get used to that. And everyone's like, "Why are you? Why are you now the donkey?" I'm like, "It's fine, it's fine." <laughs> the weirdest ones are the like. Accident. The weirdest ones are like the the hardcore MMO players who move their whilst onto like. Um, e S D F, so they can have more keys around it, mm. and I, mm. that's this. I don't think I could ever shift my entire perception of games one key to the right. <laughs> <laughs> just be too much. Asking for just yes. Yeah, I can remove the keys on my keyboard, so maybe I could just take them all off and move them. On. <laughs> as long as I don't plan to write anything, that'll be fine. <laughs> Maybe it, it corresponds to their political alignment and they go f- further right the more right-wing they are. <laughs> are you saying that MMO hardcore players are, you know, right-wing nutjobs? Are yeah. you by default, by default, they're basically left-wing, all, um, all video games. As for anyone who actually uses the arrow keys instead of WASD is just, you know, a scary person to be around. That's for the Nazis. <laughs> Thief was initially suggesting that I use a number pad. <laughs> what the hell? That's the point. Yeah, that's even right right winger than the Nazis. <laughs> well, so how um, how are you finding original Thief? Uh, it's really good, actually. I'm really enjoying it. It's hard as balls, though, um, which I don't think is a phrase. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. I was trying. I was just got a very strange mental image there. You might have picked that up from me. Is this thing where me and uh, Tom Senior do, where if we can't think of a like a description, we just replace it with balls? So it's it's always think. as balls, regardless. I completely of... blame you. <laughs> I think yeah. I got hard as balls into a review once. <laughs> yeah, Ball uh, bearings are hard. That's true. And brass balls is mm. brass balls. Yeah, described. I think it was one of Kieran's comics as diverse as balls. Even less sense. If you're so diverse, you should see a doctor. <laughs> uh, yeah, no. Going back to Original Thief, it's actually been yeah. Like you sort of take a couple of seconds to just zone out from the blockiness of it all and the fact that it's you know like graphically on a par with 
nightmare and stuff and then you're you're fine like the guards have surprisingly good chatter and like the just the you know some of what Garrett says is just like quite sneering and you know like it it feels like the characters are building even though the world itself is like built using you know what now seems really basic and blocky tools and stuff and I do get really kind of like tense when I'm sort of hiding around a corner or, you know, really stressed out by, you know, like if I've done something stupid, like jumped onto a pressure pad that launches a boulder onto my head. I was like, oh, well, that was that was smart. Well done. <laughs> like that, so. I have heard legends of the stupidity of guards in the original Thief, like the losing sight of you if you stand on a table and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, like some of it is a bit kind of, you know, you maybe find a little glitch and exploit it but you know they're sort of it's actually not been bad like because i thought oh i'll just go back and then i'll probably lose interest and it'll feel like a slog and you know i'll just Uh, move to the next one but i was just thinking of that because it was i think um i think some people mentioned it on twitch recently it's it's kind of interesting how part of the vocabulary of stealth games is that the the guards are always really dumb because no one's figured out a way to make it fun if they're remotely smart it's like it's like the puzzles and adventure games never making any sense it's a thing we've just all accepted yeah like when they're like oh is that a rat and that is code for i have heard you move (laughs) (laughs) there's the old must have been a rat is the is the original code i think for i have uh, I, I saw you beforehand, but I have lost interest now and will revert to my previous pattern of behaviour. <laughs> I remember a few years back, I can't remember if I told this last time I was on, but a few years back, and me and a couple of friends went to a, basically a real-life version of kind of a stealth heist. It was like a, a game company mm. had set up this thing where they basically hired out a big old abandoned building and filled it with guards. Mm. And your job was, in real life, to like infiltrate the building, cut all the security systems and escape with the loot. Mm. And it was really funny because uh, it turns out that we're really bad at stealth in real life. (laughs) Did you just stand on a table? Yeah, we were like hiding behind chairs and stuff going, this is ridiculous. (laughs) (laughs) And the the poor actors who were the guards had come in with it, were like stomping their feet, like stomping around with flashlights being like, hmm, I thought I heard something in here. And we'd be like, what do we do? And um, at one point my friend tried to splinter cell his way up in a narrow corridor. See, people talk about games like in connection to crime, but actually, I think it's making us all terrible at it stealing so, things. That was the point where my friend, who's like six foot five, was like crouched behind a stool. I, um, yeah, I remember this. It's like the the whole like conventions of game and of game stealth just feed into your life. Like I, I was playing um, Dungeons and Dragons with some people at one point, and you put a barely competent guy in there like someone who looks the other way when they see it when a coin clatters down near them and people freak the hell out because they've never seen such a smart enemy (laughs) (laughs) how could we possibly beat this man we found in the in the real life heist we found that we were much worse at it because we also had been trained to fear a fail state (laughs) where obviously the worst thing that can happen is that the actor sees you and goes oi and then you run away but in our minds that would happen we go oh sorry shit better start again you have permadeath (laughs) (laughs) 
I've been I've been playing the, the the new thief like this last week, and I spent most of my time throwing glass bottles at like opposite walls, and all the all the kind of guards go huh and like Scooby and turn around, and you can kind of run on. But you think yeah, if you tried that in your warehouse, Keza, I'm not sure they would just sort of gone. Who threw that bottle? <laughs> they would tell us, I'm sorry, you're not allowed to smash the bottles as part of the game. <laughs> what I did actually was um, I'd been playing an awful lot of something that required either, like, I think it might have been Call of Duty or just something that required, like, people to move out in a, in a formation. Of, you know, there was a lot of shouting, army shouting, essentially. And so I decided army that I was going to be... But, well, <laughs> it probably was. Um, and so I decided that I was going to pretend I was on one of these like special like black ops stealth missions when I was in the house. And like my goal was to like get from my bedroom down like the stairs to the kitchen without the cat detecting me. I'm sorry, <laughs> you spent too much time was, alone, Pip. We're solo laughing here. <laughs> <laughs> maybe a little bit and I learned two things one was that I do not have the upper body strength that I thought I did <laughs> and two that it is possible to fall off your banisters and for your cat to give you a really disdainful look <laughs> and it wasn't it's not even my cat it's my ex-housemate's cat but she just looked at me I was like yeah you're right <laughs> um <laughs> Cats are like, uh, they're like God mode guards, though, aren't they? Yeah. Like, in the dark. Well, and just interest. They can yeah. go from completely asleep to, OMG, what is that, in the space of about three nanoseconds. Well, the other thing is, you don't know whether they just haven't seen you or whether they're just judging you and ignoring you. They can also sometimes look right through you like you're not there, which is quite troubling. <laughs> when it's just you and the cats in the house, you start to wonder. I don't think I'd ever trust a cat to guard anything. They're basically exactly. just waiting until we invent canopies that can be opened by paws, and then they'll rise up and kill us all. <laughs> <laughs> they'll just eat all our food, all of our canned goods. <laughs> but then we can't survive an apocalypse. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> They've been playing the long game. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> Has I mean, anyone played New Thief, by the way? I Simon has. Simon has. Like... Yeah, I've been playing it. Yeah. yeah, you reviewed it for Eurogamer, didn't you? I did. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Is it not very good, Simon? Um, do you know uh, it's fine? Um, yeah. <laughs> but uh, but the internet can't handle that, so of course not. <laughs> no, it's not allowed to be fine. It must be terrible or amazing. So, they, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it turns turns out I think it's utter shit. Yeah. Though I I didn't say that at all. The internet's good like that. Yeah. Um, I no. thought um, what did I think was utter shit? I thought uh, oh I thought Assassin's Creed Three was utter shit. Eighty five. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah. I um yeah like I saw a lot of people just yeah having it's one of those things isn't it where the game has like this legacy behind it. Do you think that just sort of drags it down or do you think it's just that the internet as we said can't cope with a game that's not yeah like expectations play a massive part in people's reactions on the internet and if you if it's a game that people don't really know much about and haven't heard of and you you say this is great then they're like no it's not i haven't heard of it and um the the kind of opposite is true as well if there's a legacy and they're excited and you say it's slightly not quite as good as you were hoping then um mm. uh, people get mad too it's so impossible to make a, a follow-up to something that's that from especially if it's from long ago 
um, because you aren't competing yeah. against the the actual previous games. You're competing against the imagined version that people have in their heads. Exactly. Yeah, right. Against people feeling 16 again, and you're never <laughs> going to beat that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I think as well with like stealth games, they've moved on a real long way in the last decade. And Thief, it's got some narrative constraints that mean that in terms of game design, there's only so much you can do to in terms of introducing new stuff. Um, like you can't really have Dishonored's blink ability and things like that. I'm not saying that you would necessarily want that, but you don't have that much freedom to do um, loads of different stuff. So it can, it just can feel a bit stale because of that. And I think like that project feels like they ran up against that issue and then it was just rushed out the door and Square, Square Enix were like, just get it done. And I've sort of heard that as well from um, some people who are involved so and I think it's got that feel like it could have done with another eight months but would that money have made it better I don't know that's always the question would they have yeah. fixed the problems or would they have just expanded the if they made, made more <laughs> I yeah. wonder that about Bioshock Infinite a lot <laughs> yeah. because that was the game that got rushed out the door well that's how Ken Levine described the process isn't it as like throwing ideas at, at something until enough of them worked well, I think that, I mean, I heard from somebody involved, because obviously since Irrational has dissolved, people can talk about this stuff now. Mm. And I heard from somebody there that the latter I third... I think they can. Completely <laughs> they, they can talk off the record. <laughs> yeah. They can't. They've all got NDAs for that 18 is, yeah, months, okay. I think, with that, um, that is, 2K. That is a good point. All oh, right. So in 18 months, look forward to some amazing, uh, <laughs> some amazing like, tell-all articles on Bioshock Infinite. But it makes a lot of sense that if, if, the, if the final third of the game was ripped out and rewritten, that makes a lot of sense because there's a lot of things in there that look like they don't quite work in the final third. Hmm. IMO. I, it makes sense if, there's, if there was going to be more to it. Yeah, yeah, indeed. I, making blockbuster games is super hard and getting harder all the time, basically. And I, I expect that's why Ken Levine has made the decision that he has because... It must just knock years off. I mean, it literally knocks years off your life making a blockbuster game, right? So um, yeah, uh, and then you spend five years doing it, and you have one thing that you've made to show for it, and then you put that in the context of your lifetime, and you think, well, maybe I'll make things, and then I don't, and I'm not sure if I'm down with that. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, totally. I I think it's a. You know, I have a lot of respect for people who work in AAA because mm. it's it's more stressful now than I think it's ever been. And then you yeah, put out something you've worked on for five years and people on the internet go, mm, that's because it should be. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Well, there's fewer of them like being us. made, so so there's more pressure on the ones that do get made have to make, and it's more expensive, isn't it? So like, yeah. it, everything's harder and they have to make more money and there's more eyes on them because there aren't as many of them. So, yeah, it's not an easy game to be in, I guess. Ideally, you have to be Naughty Dog and have Sony essentially being patrons. <laughs> yeah. There's um yeah I mean there's a thing from the film world that if you if you spend enough time on a film set you you become you you're amazed that any of them get made at all, never mind that they never mind that some of them are good. Yeah. 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 Um, as I say, Simon, you, I don't really know the circumstances. Kind of released a game recently. <laughs> oh uh, well. Um... Yes, yeah, so I used to, uh, as well as um, being a writer and a journalist, I also worked part-time at a game dev, which I got into in order to kind of understand more about how games are made and put together. Um, and I actually I worked at a, a developer in Brighton on an Xbox game for a while and then, and then on a bunch of Flash games. And uh, I stopped doing that about a year ago, but... Um, hmm. 
uh, before that, uh, bef- before I finished, we we made a game with um, Channel Four. Um, we made a couple actually. One was called Sweatshop, which was um, there was a, a fair amount of controversy around that game because we tried to release it onto um, the App Store and it was on there for a couple of weeks, and then Apple took it down um, because it was a game about sweatshops, and I think they felt nervous about it, and so there was a big uh, kind of hoo-ha all about that because they were sort of saying, well, you can't really, you know, if you want to say something in your game make some kind of point or or anything like that um then you should make a movie or a documentary or or write a book rather than make a game which um which yeah which is uh like a a rubbish rule and i think maybe they've removed that from their terms now but um i don't know that whether (laughs) they might have removed the text but i think it it may still be kind of their point of view with um something so anyway there was that game and then there was another one that's just come out today i think about bullying called sticks and stones um so it's a simple kind of board game um all about um bullying and victim behavior in schools and it's kind of based on the latest thinking around uh, how bullying works. So, yeah. I just I just thought it was interesting. You were talking about how hard it is to, um, how, and how difficult the world of game development is. And obviously, you've just had a game released posthumously from this studio. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, it was a small studio, so there were. But it, it, even with small teams, you see all of the difficulties that that are involved. I mean, you mentioned how tough it is to make movies. Mm. Well, you know. That is very tough, but they kind of have a scriptwriter, and then they have their director of photography, and then they they have their actors, and then you've got all of that in video games, and like the problem of how to um, come up with play and playful stuff and things that work and all of that stuff. So it's just so difficult, and you can imagine how that scales up, I guess, with a with a studio with a hundred or two hundred people uh, yeah, over was, five years. There was a, an amazing Reddit thread from somebody who worked at Ubisoft on Assassin's Creed Three. And who said that all over the world there were like three teams working on various different separate elements of the game. Yeah. And that's why, you know, when you play Assassin's Creed 3, um, a lot of it works really well. Like the main stuff works great. And then there's all this random stuff on the side. And you're like, where yeah. did that come that's from? Right. I'd heard that one of the teams, I think it might have been the Singapore team, essentially put together the prototype for the um, for the sailing entirely by themselves and then brought it to everyone else and said, we want to do this. Yeah, and um, there was one team who did all the, which I didn't even discover when I was playing that game, um, all the underground warping stuff, like the, oh, yeah. the underground Boston tunnels. That's they, really they, strange. That was done completely independently, and that was weird. And the homestead stuff was it. And when I was using, trying to use some of these games, when I was uh, some of these uh, side quests, when I was playing it, I was like, it's like nobody actually played this. And that was true. It turned out that nobody on the team had actually played mm. some of the stuff. Mm. together like as a, as a cohesive whole all kind of got stuck together at the end yeah i don't know how ubisoft does it really because they that thing that happened on assassin's creed 3 has only um increased you know that i think pippa and i went to see tri- the new trials um didn't we pip um a couple of weeks ago and uh, they were just you know they've got i can't remember how many but it was an unbelievable number of studios all around the world kind of working on the game um just contributing different bits and and like even with trials like they collaborated with three different studios to sort of a load of the stuff to do with it launching on different platforms at the same time yeah and stuff like that so like it's it seems to be like a really valuable resource to have but at the same time like managing it on the scale of a game like assassin's creed is just going to be a complete nightmare and you can see where the bits where the game doesn't seem to knit together comes from and sometimes when you 
think about it or when you talk to the people who worked on it you're like you know even though it really annoyed me at the time certain things you're like well actually I, you know I can't even understand how you even got it to that stage of completeness yeah. <laughs> or like coherence I mean it's telling that no one else no one else really makes a game that size every year um, mm. but even though it doesn't always work they're the only people who've managed to sort of pull it off law. and I, th- I think I'm so I'll have to try and dig it out, but I think Jason Killingsworth wrote a big article about the process of making Assassin's Creed 3 and just coordinating across that many studios for Edge at one point. Mm. I'll see if I can track it down. But yeah, I have no idea how they do it. It's There's the degree of international cooperation required and people managing people in completely different time zones. Mm. Um, it's bad enough running a game's website with people in different... <laughs> exactly. I mean, that was part of the problem with um, uh, XCOM at 2K... Uh, you read um, Chris Plant's article about that, the, but the coordination between um, Australia and the US was a huge drag on the process mm. of making it. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it, the interesting thing is that as people who write about the industry, you get to you know you get to meet lots of people who make games, and as you start to get more understanding of you know when when you go and visit studios or you hear about the difficulties. It all gets humanised in a way that I think for some players doesn't always happen. And so you've always got that like slightly you know, tricky thing of obviously when you write a review, you're doing it for the consumer and you're going, you know, this, is this worth your money and your time, you know, if you like these things. But, you, you know, increasingly as I get older, I always have in the back of my head, yeah, but, you know, all the faces of the people who have given their lives to this project mm-hmm. too, you know. And I guess it, it makes you put a bit more thought into every sentence if you're going to say something a, a criticism it, it kind of makes you measure it more so it's good in a sense well, it makes it, it uh, to me that kind of uh, hi, um, it highlights the, the difference in jobs between being a games critic and a games reporter because mm-hmm. um, I mean I feel more you know as I've been doing this a long time now and I feel more and more like a games reporter mm-hmm. rather than a games critic because my knowledge of the people and processes involved in this industry has grown Mm-hmm. And I feel Why like do you that, think that kind of um, precludes you or excludes you from being a critic? Then the more that you, the closer you become. I don't think it does because people aren't, you know, people aren't stupid. You can you can set it apart in your mind. Mm-hmm. But um, I think that a lot of our readers probably think that it does. Mm. You know, and uh, maybe they do have a point in in some way. It's a tricky one because I mean I I think that I mean I for instance I'm not reviewing Dark Souls two mm. because. I was very involved with Demon Souls and very personally involved with Dark Souls, and I feel like I'm too close to it. Mm. And, and you're the lead character in Dark Souls too. <laughs> I am Peter Seraphin. Yes. <laughs> I'm just doing a special voice right now. <laughs> but yeah, something like that. And I'm, I'm writing a book about it as well. So I thought, you know what, I, I'm probably a bit too close to this. I'd, I'd rather not review it. Um, but that's the only time I've ever actually felt that I would rather not. And that's a personal thing. It's not like I don't think I could. It's that I'd rather not. I just that's less known. Developers are more just being a fan, really. I guess. Yeah, totally. Um, and when it comes to knowing developers, mm-hmm. I think it's very rarely a problem that your best mate has made The Last of Us. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Mm. Um, yeah. I do. Say, uh, I, I was thinking of the thing you were saying earlier about uh, about how little gamers realise the, the the I guess the little people in games they only know the big names. Um, and I, I I kind of wish we could see a little bit more of that. I kind of want to see an interview with the guy who just like. Make makes little areas in games like the person mm. who put together Adam Jensen's room in Human Revolution, which is a place I love. But there's that weird sense within AAA games where 
I, I'm assuming that people own a very these very small portions of it. Like someone made all the gun textures and and just wondering. Well, someone made just the hands in FIFA. Yeah, I'm wondering <laughs> what they think about that and yeah. how and because there's some of them you can tell that people really care about these small things. Yeah, I have an amazing anecdote about this. So. Um, I met the guy who modelled the lamp posts in Goldeneye, <laughs> no. right? Which is which is interesting in and of itself. I mean, to a point, right? Because you go, so you made the lamp posts. He's like, yeah. And you're like, how did that go? <laughs> anyway, but why why it's interesting beyond the fact that it's lamp posts is that at the time Rare had this deal where they would uh, basically, I think it was for every copy of a game that was sold the team would get a pound uh, or whatever, some some kind of percentage that would then be split between them all. And because Goldeneye sold like so many copies, um, he just kind of one of the most junior artists on the team. So, um, and I think they changed their policy after that game, he told me. <laughs> um, so yeah, sometimes so it pays to be the little guy. <laughs> That is really interesting. Then I met the guy that did the benches. <laughs> it is it is funny, but um, I I went to see the the guys who made Limbo mm. a couple of years ago, and um, I wrote a book about them making well, tiny book about them making that, which is coming out pretty soon. Oh. And the interesting thing about about that process was that it was literally seventeen people that made Limbo, mm. and so I could sit down for you know a half day and talk to every single one of those people. Um, and I talked to obviously some of them. <clears throat> some of them I talked to for a whole day, like uh, Yepa Carlson, who made all the um, all the puzzles, and uh, Arnt Jensen, who was the sort of author guy behind it all. And other guys, you know, I, and it was all guys. Um, there was one woman involved with Limbo who did some of the animation. Um, but yeah, I, I chatted to them for like a few hours to half a day to an entire day each. Every single person who made that game, and it's, you're not going to be able to do that with you know most games. Mm. And it was really really interesting. I know what you mean. I was. Um... Uh, I was having a very similar sense while I was reading um, Masters of Doom earlier, but because there's only a handful of people involved in the starting process of it, the, you get it gets completely in depth with all of them. Yeah, and you don't suffer. From, I think one of the hardest things of trying to tell like a warts and all story of a blockbuster game is that you've got so many people and they, their perspectives are all different and their truths are all different, but their truths are all like their truths. They're not lying. But so actually trying to like draw out what is the full picture of this and trying to find a narrative mm-hmm. is just next to impossible. It's Exactly. Especially if it's, if it's been problematic development, like everyone's going to have their own opinion on why exactly, yeah. any project fails, usually involving not, it not being their fault. It's wonderfully yeah, satisfying nice. reporting though, if you do manage <laughs> to find the story amongst all that. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, generally your job, if you're if you're the outside person, um, in like for instance, the, the I'd love to read, and there's a fantastic Atlantic article on three four three student. Wait, no, well not three four three. Uh, what was that one that the baseball player had? Uh, oh, oh yeah, thirty eight um, students. Kingdoms of Amalur one. King, yeah, Kingdoms of Amalur guys. Yeah. There was a really fantastic long piece in the Atlantic about the collapse of that studio. Oh, I've been waiting for enough people, enough like, um, contractor. Uh, contractual NGAs to expire for someone to really write the story of that. Yeah, and and the thing yeah. is that being the outsider in the middle of a meltdown, it is your job to try and find what the actual story is in amongst what everyone's saying. Mm. And sometimes you read something, and not just about games, obviously in all journalism, you read something that really nails that. Mm. And it's really something to aspire to, I think. It's great. It's just not possible a lot of the time in games. I mean, apart from anything else, sometimes the story isn't very interesting. Sometimes they just didn't have enough yeah. money and everything kind of 
petered yeah, out. That's right. And I think in that case, it's it's like a special case that one because they they kind of this one guy made the studio, they made one game, and then they collapsed. Um, and so everyone can kind of go off and tell their story without it really affecting their future career. Yeah. Whereas I think if you were irrational and you kind of try and tell the, you know, the the dark story of whatever happened there, then, you know, you, you're going to worry about, because literally everyone that you're going to work at at your next job, um, you know, half of them might have come from that studio and they might read what you said to the press and all of that. And so I think people are a lot more conservative because they're kind of, you know, they they just want to protect their future jobs. You know, the particularly in America, like um, mm. I think the kind of US video game industry, everyone is like one or two degrees away on LinkedIn, you know, so. Um, <laughs> There's, um yeah, I mean, I, I mentioned that um, article by Chris Plant earlier about the, uh, about um, the XCOM shooter and the lengthy process that went through, and it's telling that almost that that is almost entirely off the record. Everything in there is there's no names attributed to it whatsoever, mm-hmm. because no one wants to put their name on that. Um, they can maybe get away with it with uh, yeah, studios because everyone's going to blame um, because you know everyone's going to blame the one guy for the falling of a studio. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, should we answer some questions from Twitter? Yes. <laughs> I love questions from Twitter. They're brilliant. <laughs> that doesn't sound entirely sincere, does it? <laughs> I haven't even looked at them yet, so they might be terrible. <laughs> uh, there was one we found uh, got uh, last week. We didn't really have time to answer. It was quite interesting. It says, how do you feel about religion in video games? Playing Final Fantasy XIII Lightning Returns and being forced into doing uh, God's Will uh, feels really strange. I don't know if anyone's played Lightning Returns, so I can't comment specifically on that. I haven't, but that's I have. interesting. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I've played that quite a lot. I mean, it's just it comes down to uh, make believe, doesn't it? In mm. terms of when you play a video game, you are you know should be able to. It's fiction. You should be able to inhabit any role or kind of mm. do any task within it. I think that's one of the, the difficulties that people sometimes have with video games is because they're like have an active participant role in this in the fiction, and so there's this sometimes you you know hear it from people that they're like well i don't want to play as this character because they don't share my values or my beliefs and things like that and you know that's just nonsense the whole the wonderful thing about video games is that they give us an opportunity to um, step into the shoes of someone who is in a very different position in life to us or has a very different background or believes different things such as in final fantasy's case you know (laughs) the uh blonde-haired waif-like savior of some weird japanese universe this came up today and um, there was uh, a bit of news on um, um, gay characters. Mm. And so, so there was a bit of chat about that. And I was reading unwisely some comments. Oh. And uh, one of the comments was just like, look, why would you have a gay character? If you put a gay character in a game, then he's gay and I have nothing in common with him. And it's like, oh, <laughs> you know. Well, this is why you end up with like all of the boxes look the same with the yeah. kind of gruff man in his mid to late 30s I mean, a, uh, with a gun and yeah. yeah it's just like a would you would you genuinely think that you could not have anything in common with another human being who happens to be gay and b well what if, even if you didn't isn't it interesting to play characters that you have nothing in common with rather than some kind of weird projected hyper macho version of what you wish you were it's just bizarre mm. what i find is strange uh what i find strange about uh, some video games is that um they take this sort of slightly peculiar secular theology almost mm. and so you get things like um like 
like murdered soul suspect you know when people are playing as a character that has some deal with the afterlife or demons or you know things like that and and sort of seeing what games companies are happy to sort of have as as sort of almost non-religious like you know you can have you know going towards the light and you can have some sort of limbo state and you can have you know demons and things like that but none of it constitutes a religious point of view it's just sort of you know a, a commonly held that's really interesting it's a really mm. well, yeah it's really tricky to write isn't it i mean like um like I, i'm an atheist but I, I i do like a lot of fiction rooted in religious imagery and religious mythology because there's all sorts of fascinating things in there um whether you're you're going along with it or being subversive like say something like good omens um there's all sorts of interesting that's a really interesting starting point for the fantastical um, a huge amount of fantasy elements are based in some kind of religious mythology even if it's you know it's easier in some cases when it's old like Norse mythology when it but when you when you're using actual say Christian mythology you've got to you know position you've got this weird uh, uncertainty as to what stance you're going to take because if you say um, if you say all if you say all this is uh, all this is true, then it almost say it feels like you're taking the stance of this religious religion is correct, which is, I guess, why people try and vague it up a little. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, yeah, it's interesting. Like games, I'm I'm very interested in theology, mm. um, and games never really engage with it properly. You know, the only game mm. I've seen recently that that really tackles faith mm. is that Dragon Cancer. Yeah, that's right. I was gonna, I was gonna reference that because, you know, I think we've ended up with this, like Pip says, this wash of kind of Dungeons and Dragons influenced mythology that's kind of fantastical and has spiritual undertones, but it's kind of safe. But it's like super boring and it doesn't really say anything. It's just this kind of like it becomes this indecipherable hum of that doesn't say anything. It washes over us, and then you get a game like that Dragon Cancer that comes out, which is going this is about a specific situation i have a specific worldview um i believe this about the universe and you're going to step into my shoes and, and see things through my point of view for a little bit i would far rather like games do that even if it's um you know things that make me slightly uncomfortable or jar with you know my own worldview um at least they're trying to like say something beyond just pass the time a bit do you know what i mean i know you hitting mean. orcs I know what you mean, but I think you can still have some like depth and feeling without necessarily resorting to specific religion. Like I've been, um, been playing the Blackwell games recently, which is all about um, ghosts and the afterlife, and it does use a very generic stepping into the light. But I, it, it says some really, in, it, I, it, I still find it very affecting in it, how it describes these sort of unfinished lives and gives them these this sort of. In fact, it's almost better because if you knew they were going to, you know, actual heaven or whatever, then there would be more certainty to it. You'd know that everyone got a happy ending, but when they just walk off into the mysterious light, you have no idea what's going on and it gives it a kind of bittersweet, melancholy feeling. Mm. Yeah. I think that in some cases, like, well, with certainly with things like, um, there's a lot of horror games that use religion and religious buildings and religious imagery as a sort of shortcut for you know, this is a spooky place or this is, you know, not a safe place. And so that sort of, it, it, it's become a visual language, certainly in some genres that you can sort of invoke in a, in a kind of an easy way. And so, it, but there doesn't seem to be 
or I certainly haven't really experienced anything where, you know, a church actually feels like a place of sanctuary or safety. Mm. And yeah. so I sort of, I find that one view is predominating and I don't know whether that's because it's, it's become part of that, you know, that visual language or that sort of language of games that just, you know, it's, it's easier to fall back on that and, and for it to be a negative thing and to just carry on building into that or whether it's sort of more symbolic of the fact that I don't think a lot of people who make games are have, uh, you know, sort of a strong personal faith or you know like who aren't atheist or who aren't sort of at least agnostic I don't tend to see many people Mm. talking about their own faith or sort of imbuing games with that and you know there's no not necessarily a reason that they should but at the same time it does feel that it isn't representing perhaps a vast swathe of Mm. of human experience and perhaps that's because people you know religion is so personal and it it does invoke such strong feelings that you know if you're trying to appeal to as broad an audience as possible just for your you know for your bottom line then you know you you don't want to risk alienating everybody who doesn't want to engage with a religious game or you know you don't want to risk pissing off Mm. you know people of a particular faith if if it's not a faith that is particularly comfortable with being appropriated in that way. I mean, you know, I think um, Christianity, certainly sort of Church of England type stuff, is perhaps easier to get away with in that context than something like Islam, which, you know, has... I think we might be saying that living in Britain rather than certain places in America. Where I... I think that, well... Well, yeah, but, you know, but I I, I picked those particular examples for a reason, like, because the Church of England that I am familiar with is, you know, doesn't tend to get as uh, publicly angry, maybe just because it's so fractured, or it feels like, um, and and other faiths or other branches of faiths. I think... The, the specific situation he described is kind of interesting because it is that kind of um, there's that kind of sort of anti-authoritarian instinct in gamers where you tell them to go left and they go right, um, which is then perhaps feels a little bit stranger when you add like God's will as a justification for someone to do something. It kind of brings mm. out their natural tendency to act against that. Though uh, that's just reminding me of a really interesting interview I did with um, the. Uh, uh, um, David Ridden and uh, William Pugh, I'm not sure if I've said pronounced either of those names correctly, uh, who did the Stanley Parable, which they, uh, David talked about speaking to a um, Christian who viewed the, the version of the Stanley Parable where you follow all the orders of the narrator as the correct one, and it was about, it was actually all about faith, and that hmm. if you and then if you submit That's your world to a higher... Really, that, what a great interpretation. Yeah, and then yeah. if you submit your world to a higher power, you get the good ending. Whereas, from my obviously, from my point of view, I immediately went right when they told me to go left. <laughs> and it's entirely about critical thought. <laughs> I mean, there's this thing... Sorry, Pip, go ahead. Um, well, I was just going to say, the thing about that is it kind of feeds into other sort of negative interpretations of religion and faith, which are just that it's about blindly following a top-down you know rule set and not about internalizing things and making your own decisions and you know sort of Mm. using faith to become you know what you feel is a better person you know like it 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 still feels pejorative no i know what you mean but i don't 
<laughs> at the time, there was certainly a way in which it, uh, he certainly articulated in a way which made a little Ooh. bit a little a little bit warmer in that it was it is putting faith that the the narrator obviously has information that you oh, are there. You, you... I wasn't dicking on that particular person's <laughs> yeah. interpretation. It's it's more just that that's a thing that I I never found with because my parents are quite uh, involved with the church and stuff like that. So it's something that I grew up with, and so you know, sort of. I guess my experience of it seems to be slightly more so than other people's, certainly in in our industry. And yeah, I, was, I, I do find it really interesting when games let you define that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, they'll set like an event and then let you react to it. There's a a really interesting scene in the first Mass Effect where uh, Ashley Williams talks about her faith, and that's entirely set. That you know, you can't decide whether she's religious or not. She just is. But then when she asks you the question, you get to define whether Shepard is religious, which is rewriting the past in a way and letting you author the experience, which I found really interesting. Mm, that's interesting. There's, um, I mean, I think the thing that I find really fascinating about video games and theolo- the conversation about theology, and in, it relates to what you just said there about Mass Effect, is that a, a designer uh, at some point came up with when they were they, when they were kind of when they said let there be light and there was Mass Effect. <laughs> <laughs> the rules for that universe and they said uh, well, I'm going to let people have free will in this or I'm not going to let people have free will in this moment they're going to have to sit and watch a cutscene and there's something about the act of creating a video game that is godlike whereby you decide the parameters of the universe you decide how gravity is going to work how light works all of these things that are kind of from uh from kind of old testament uh narrative and um and yeah there's and then they deposit a player inside there and you go i've created this world and you know you can either live by my rules or you can't or there's actually a bunch of rules i've decided on that you're gonna you don't have any choice over you're gonna have to you're gonna have to you know push up to walk and stuff and uh, you know there's just been so little written about that or thought about that that i think is kind of quite a rich theme maybe yeah. it's interesting that, the, that is essentially the great debate in game design is how much free will to give people right exactly yeah <laughs> when uh when i was in my uh questioning phase as a teenager i was playing black and white mm. and uh although black and white is uh not the deepest exploration, I don't think, of theology. What I found really struck home with it is the fact that you were trying your best as God and you just weren't doing very well. Mm. And, you know, you'd try really hard and you'd give people grain and then people would forget how to farm and then they'd have to like, have you give them grain all the time so you'd try and help them and you'd be harming them by helping them. And that made me think a lot about the Old Testament God mm. and about like maybe he was just doing his best, but, but he couldn't figure it out. And maybe what happened was that he just closed that game and never went back and that's why he's no longer a present. <laughs> You know, or he just got so pissed off at like running around after the people. He rage quit. He's like, right, screw you! I'm sending a flood. Yeah. Well, yeah, rage quit. Rage yeah. quit with a flood. Yeah. <laughs> and that was it. Yeah. After a while, he just said, "Screw it," and we'll just upload it and do Twitch plays Earth. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, um, uh, I think we've answered that one anyway. So, um, next question is sort of somehow. <laughs> When when we say answer a question, we usually mean we talk about it for a bit and release no conclusion whatsoever. Yeah, fine. Uh, Rich Woodward asks, uh, have you ever loved a game so much that you've deliberately altered the experience just to keep playing, uh, like Dark Souls, SL1, or God Hand, Kick Me Sign? 
Um, I, Craig actually responded to this. He's not on the podcast this week, but he's just finished uh, an SL1 uh, run-through of Dark Souls. So no, I have we'll probably talk about that next those. week as well. That's amazing. <laughs> well done. Mm. <laughs> he's, um, he's deliberately refusing to see anything about Dark Souls 2 as well. He's doing a blind run-through of it to make it even harder because <laughs> he's a massive masochist. <laughs> I don't have the time to do that. Mm. You know, like I probably would do an SL1 run of Dark Souls if I had lots and lots of time, but I just don't. Mm. I'd love to. You're a freelancer, Kezzy. You're clearly not <laughs> writing hard enough. Am I not doing it right? No. <laughs> I mean, for example, are you even dressed right now? <laughs> <laughs> I absolutely am. I'm fully dressed oh, at a desk and everything. Oh, you should be in your dressing gown eating cereal from a box. It's 9pm. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, to be honest, I'm just not good enough at games that I challenge myself most of the time. Um, and most, and yeah, I don't have a huge amount of time, so most of the time if I try a second playthrough of something, I, um, uh, yeah, I, I, I don't follow through with it. Especially for things like, say, Deus Ex or Dishonored that give you a load of options, I, I tend to find in those that rather than running them through different ways, I just hone in on my preferred way of playing the game and do that over and over again. I did this when I was a teenager with my game that I'm really good at, the only one, mm. uh, which is Amplitude. Mm. I was I was very very good at Amplitude, and I made it. We I got to the point where I was playing it with one hand and then using my face to to uh, <laughs> to, to move between tracks, um, which was a bit stupid. I, but, you is know, that how you then played rock band on the drums? <laughs> Smacking my head off the top. On the cymbal. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I got, because um, I got I got so good at amplitude that I'd kind of exhausted it. And so I had tried, tried to make it artificially harder. <laughs> I uh, I once knew a girl at university who was so incredibly uh, obsessed with and good at the Legacy of Kane Soul Reaver games that she could literally play Soul Reaver backwards. Running backwards, jumping backwards the whole time. Wow. <laughs> Nice. Uh, that would do well on Twitch. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She really start streaming. Good. Soul Reaver backwards. Hashtag. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I. Well, there are some games that I'm obsessively good at, but they tend to be things like, um, like um, Zookeeper and stuff like that. You know, like slightly more sort of match three type stuff. And you so, never played Zookeeper with like 3D glasses on, so you can't see the colours or anything. <laughs> <laughs> well, what I used to do is like I used to play it. So I would, um, you know, there are some level. Well, like uh, some of the things you you need to collect certain amounts of. Well, you know, you, you collect certain amounts of the animals, and the animals all correspond to a different colour and stuff like that. So I would do them in like rainbow order and stuff. Like I wouldn't wow. let myself not. You know, like if if I sort of uh, um, filled up the the yellow lions before I'd filled up the you know red. I can't remember what the red ones were actually, but um, yeah, like I I would stop and restart entirely. So mm. things like that. But I mean, that's that's weird. <laughs> I think that's, I have actually thought of one, um, which is with uh, FIFA, which is the only the only games in the world which is harder to play in co-op than it is in single player because. In order to do so, when you pass to someone, it will always be the other player receiving the ball, so you've always got to be thinking the same thing, and if they run in the opposite direction, then you've messed it up. And I always prefer to play it that way, because you know, it, it, this is 
amazing moment when you it, it's much harder I, and we always do much worse but whenever i'm playing it with a friend and you actually pull something off it's like yes we knew exactly what each other was thinking we both we planned this we had this like instinctual uh connection uh, which feels amazing you know i tend to sort of you know like mostly normal difficulty is hard enough anyway so like you know the 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 way that i'll make it harder is is just by you know getting to the next level (laughs) (laughs) trying to actually get further in the damn game (laughs) so yeah oh actually twitch streaming makes things harder because i'm talking and trying to play the bloody thing at the same time Which is just. And you do, actually, you know, you're doing the you're doing the Dota challenge. That's totally making it harder. Oh god! Yeah, no. So I'm doing the Dota A to Z challenge, but I'm doing it backwards because, <laughs> like, the heroes that I like were towards the the end of the alphabet, and I thought, well, I'll just I'll <laughs> And so it's, I think it's making me better at Dota, but it's also really, really difficult. <laughs> it's spoiling some of my evenings, and so I'm trying to like learn these massively difficult heroes. Like, well, for me anyway. But there's um there's a guy called Visage who's like the this bird who's like he's a gatekeeper to hell i think or something you know and so he's got oh, like these two other bird minions that you can summon and like so you're controlling him but you can also control those two and those two you can use to stun people and they've got far better magic immunity than you do and you're just like oh my god i'm trying to be three things on the screen at once and chat to people who are trying to give me advice that i don't understand <laughs> Oh, it's the worst. Anyway, yeah. So I've I've ruined my own life, and I have no one to blame but myself. How far along are you with that now? I'm on Ursa, who is a bear. <laughs> I won a game with him today, but I wasn't streaming it, so it doesn't count. But I'm thinking that I might actually just dig out the replay and then stream it, and then just be like, yeah, no, I'm definitely playing this right now. Just offer a retrospective commentary on the whole thing. Critique yeah, yourself. Yeah. Oh, I'd completely forgotten that I did this. Wait, no, uh, I'm doing this right now. <laughs> so, yeah, it, it'll be fine. I'll be fine. <laughs> cool. I think that's all the ones I've got on the podcast account, but you had a couple sent to you, didn't you, Pip? Uh, I did. Let me just find them on the Twitter. So, um, somebody asked, does the buzz of Titanfall, uh, this is Terra and Love on Twitter, does the buzz of Titanfall show how tired people are of COD and modern shooters? Yep. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. (laughs) Uh, I was going to say, I don't know if that's necessarily what it shows. I think it shows that there were good things about Call of Duty, but they're not the things that the marketing team got hold of. Yep. Well, I think as well. Which was let's 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 let's. I think the, the Call of Duty's main problem mm. is this idea of hiding all your best stuff. Mm. Like let's let's hide all of our really really cool stuff behind kill streaks, and then let's increasingly specialize to the point where, you know, you actually exclude yourself from various ways of playing as you play more. Mm. And mm. let's um let's let's basically become ultra narrow and specialist as opposed to becoming a game where it's it's kind of like the original Halo, mm. where everybody's on a level playing field. And you're having the same kind of minute of fun over and over again, but that minute of fun is so good and so flexible. Yeah, and it's much more flexible. Like, I mean, I've, I've heard people talking about running routes in Titanfall, which is kind of true with the speed at which you move, but also the way that the grunts and things move around kind of change the battlefield around a lot. So, yeah, but, but anyway, yeah, what I was trying to say is that they've 
they've kind of realized that the, the good things about Call of Duty are being very fast, being very stable, not necessarily being flash. One of the, and the interesting thing is when you realize that's the strength of COD, you realize that COD and Battlefield, that are were never really in competition with each other. They were both completely mm. different games. Uh, it was just the, the two advertising campaigns that were in competition. I mean, I wonder if it's simpler than that, mm. and it's just, it's over-familiar. Like, people know it. Mm-hmm. People know what they're getting. Video games are all about the new. They're kind of yoked to technology. They're yoked to... Video games are only fun when you're learning something new and different, and yeah. when you get the same one every every year the sales go down because people aren't interested anymore and then something like titan 4 comes along that has all of the great stuff that cod has uh but has a bunch of other stuff that's also brilliant and you've got something to be excited about something new to learn and all of that stuff as well mm. and there's variation within the game in in a way that i've not felt with call of duty either so it's you know it's, it sort of switches it up in two ways definitely feels like they've looked at the problems with call of duty as well as the strengths yeah, definitely. Well, um, that's all we've got time for this week. Uh, we'll see you next week and say goodbye, everybody. Bye. Goodbye. Bye.